The cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when a group of entitled quasi-celebrity white kids from the Hollywood Hills shoot a short-term feature film with nothing but two days, a diner, and only the ghost memory of a script? What happens when what they do have is Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, Kevin Connolly, and all the pussy those boys can score? Would it ruin friendships, careers, the entire landscape of experimental and avant-garde cinema? Let's find out. So sit back and try to relax as we take you through the most wild, dramatic, and far-out tale in Hollywood. The story of Artie Robb's 1995 or 2001 film Don's Plum. The true drama of which actually has nothing to do whatsoever with the actual content of the film. Brought to you by Hissing at Whores, That Third Act Molestation Bomb, The Saddest Girl to Ever Wear Birkenstocks, The Nuclear Fragility of Toby Maguire's Ego, and The End of Pussy. And of course, the safe word today is relax. Anything to add, Benji? So, just trying to get to know you guys. Do any of you masturbate? I, I haven't masturbated in two months because... No, I can't remember the reason why. <laughs> Fuck it. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. Hi, London. Hi, Benji. My name is Ben. No, it's not. So, we're just going to plow right past that one. And we're going to start talking about Don's Plum. Don's Plum. London, how did we hear about the movie Don's Plum? Okay, so I first heard about the movie Don's Plum back in 2001, actually. All right, going and back. so, yeah. I was one of those teen girls that did get wrapped up in the Leonardo DiCaprio stuff. I was the right age uh, when Titanic and Romeo and Juliet came out, so that happened. Looking back yeah. on this film now, I I don't know why it happened, but it happened. <laughs> so so that was a thing. And then there was word on the street that he was in this movie, and it was going to be controversial as fuck because there were all these lawsuits about it, and it was banned. And so I'm thinking, all right, this is the stuff to watch. I happened to be living in France at the time, and so I could buy it over there. So I did. You, yeah, you could have actually seen this movie at a film festival in Europe when you were living there. That's kind of fascinating. I mean, I could have, but I didn't. No in one's fact, perfect, especially not you. When I got this DVD... I don't think I've ever actually watched my PAL DVD, Region 2. Not because I couldn't. Most of my DVDs were Region 2. But every time I thought about, do I really just want to watch Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire 
talk at a diner for an hour and a half, like <laughs> my dinner with Andre, but the 90s teen angst edition, I realized the answer was no. So I just had never watched it. So this was actually my first time watching the film, even though I've owned the DVD for about 20 years. Wow. Okay. I'm pretty sure I had seen some news story about this in 2001, very briefly. Uh, there was some internet buzz about it in that there was this controversial film that Toby and Leo had made a few years prior. And th this was the weird thing. I vaguely remember news stories like really leading up the hype on this one because they thought that there was a homoerotic content to it that Leo and Toby were not comfortable with. And mind you, these are news stories being written because they had only sparing details about the movie. And they thought that there was something homoerotic going on in the movie between Leo and Toby. When, you know, it wasn't this movie that had the homoerotic content. That was The Great Gatsby. Yes. Yes, it was. I recall going to see that movie with you. And there were some scenes in there. I swear to God, you got loud and you're like, the fucking Slash just writes itself in this movie. It does. Although, to be fair, also the, the homoeroticism between Toby and Leo is kind of known as their entire lives. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the 90s, the early the 90s. 2000s. I don't even ship this. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's all over the place. Even though, like, that was the, the new story about this film. Like, I, I, there's really nothing in this movie that I think anyone who is into shipping Leo and Toby they wouldn't do it from this film. No, no, not at all. In fact, there's not really anything erotic in general about no, not what really. happens I, in this I, film. I, so. I feel that like those snippets of information that news sites were taking on back in the day were probably coming from like reports that there's a male character who says he's bisexual in this film, which does happen, but it's not Leo or Toby. That's true. There is a moment that you can find elsewhere that apparently had to be cut, and we'll get into this with the lawsuits, where Toby Maguire mentions something about like liking to put a pinky near his asshole while he's masturbating, and this is totally fine, it's an erogenous zone, he has a prostate, this shit makes sense, not an uncommon masturbation practice. And yet when Tobey Maguire caught wind of the fact that this made it into the movie, he just freaked out. He's like, no, I can't have people knowing this about me. You're like, you mean about your character? Because <laughs> you were in character, right? What led to us watching this film currently, a few years back, I was on, uh, I don't know, I was commenting on something on Reddit about like lost films or unreleased films. And someone mentioned Don's Plum. And I think I replied with like, yeah, Don's Plum, I've heard about that film. I always wanted to see it. And someone else replied with like, yeah, if anyone wants a, a good copy of that movie, let me know. I sent the guy a message. I was like, yeah, I'm actually curious to see this film. Are you able to, do you have a link or a way to, to find the movie? He's like, yeah, sure. And he gives me a link to a Vimeo page that is private and then gives me the password to it. And after chatting with the guy back and forth, I realized this is someone who was involved with the film. I to this day I, I can't make like there's nothing in his username that give like his or her username that gives away who it is. But this is clearly someone who had involvement with the film and really wanted it to be seen. So yeah, I serendipitously was able to see this movie because uh, someone who involved with it saw my comment on Reddit and said, "Yeah." I'm going to show you this film, by God. And, yeah, and we've since learned who that was, but, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll let him keep his... 
Of course. It's... Anonymity, I guess, on, online, posting Respect his stuff. Respect the rights the, of the anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fun. So there are people out there that fight in the fight to get this film sort of seen. So what is the best thing about this film? The simple answer to that is just that it exists. That this time capsule of a very specific group of people from a very specific period in time exists and is preserved and it shows us an unfiltered look at what could be the most obnoxious group of people ever known to man. Fair enough. And what is the worst thing about this film? That it is only unreleased because millionaires are embarrassed by it. Yeah, so that is the thing. Is the I guess we generally start with worst and then best, but the worst and best thing about this film is oddly the same thing. It's <laughs> that, that it exists. Well, more just the story that surrounds it for me. Yeah. So we will definitely, most of this actually will probably be us getting into the story that surrounds Don's Plum. But the story that surrounds it is fascinating. And so it's great that this happened in a way that we can kind of see the drama because the drama of yeah. Don's Plum is, yeah, its surroundings. And yet it is really, really sad that the censorship was able to happen. I'm, I'm a big... First Amendment free speech person, and so the, the trial that surrounds this does make yeah. me a, a little, a little angry. I so. feel that in some ways this is something that you could do a uh, a disaster artist style movie with, where you could make a film that was mm -hmm. about both the making of this film and the suppression of this film at the same time. The story <laughs> of Leo and Toby shoot a movie. Leo and Toby do everything they can to stop a, mov a movie from being seen. Yeah, that would definitely be the Heart of Darkness take on Don's Plum, <laughs> and it would be better than the original thing, that Hearts story of, of darkness. the Vietnam that is the 1990s yeah. Hollywood landscape of young teen Ever actors. see Hearts of Darkness? Way better than Apocalypse Now. <laughs> All right. So the, the story of Don's Plum is going to be a very, very simple affair, because these motherfuckers, they didn't have a script. This entire movie, more or less, is going to be a group of friends, friends in real life, and okay. then also friends in this film, that are just going to have a group gathering and conversation at a diner. That, that is going is to be the film. That is the, the film main, of Don's Plum. <laughs> the main hard thrust of And the so film. as we go through it, if you're wondering, like, yeah, but when does the plot start? It doesn't. Like, this is the plot of the film. Yeah, that's the plot. <laughs> I remember one time watching an artsy early John Waters film with a friend and they said, does this film have a plot? And I said, <laughs> do fireworks have a plot? No. But do you keep watching to the end? You goddamn right you do. Right? Oh, honey. Oh, honey. John Waters. Yeah. John Waters <laughs> doesn't need a plot. Pretty much. Okay. So having said that, uh, do we want to get into the events of this film? I mean, not all of the details, probably, but probably we can not. revisit some of them. But uh, uh, yeah, what's the first thing that uh, you noticed after the the cuts of the city? I, I noticed Jeremy Sisto. Yeah, so like, number what? one celebrity Hi, spotting right Jeremy, here. Jeremy, what are you doing here? What? So Jeremy is going to be one of the close-knit friends with the people who are shooting this movie. So I guess another point of context that would be helpful is that... At some point, Artie Rob, the kid from Christmas Story, decides he wants to shoot a movie, and he wants to shoot a movie with his friends, because he is friends with Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, Kevin Connolly, 
Also, randomly, like Harmony Corinne and David Blaine um, were part of the Pussy Posse. So he's got this group Ethan of friends. Ethan Soup there, too. Yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of people in the 90s called the Pussy yeah. Posse, sort of ring-led by Leonardo DiCaprio, and they decided yeah. they're going to shoot a short film. And yeah. Jeremy Sisto is amongst this group, but for some reason, he's just going to appear in this opening scene to break up with Amber Benson. He's just, he's gone. And the, what the Amber who, uh, I think her name is Amy in the movie. This was someone from Buffy. Am I, am I wrong? Yes. So she's going to play Tara on Buffy. Okay. I don't think, let's see. So they shot this in 1995, even though it's a 2001 release film. It's shot in 95. We'll get into that. Um, So she would not yet have been on Buffy, but she will be in a couple years. Ah. And she's also our saddest girl in the world in Birkenstocks. Go to a jazz club. My note was here, like, I wish this jazz club existed. Right. Holy I shit. Know. Yeah. And that's where we see Toby. Toby is asking, uh, he's asking a lady out and she's like, nope, can't go. The male characters in this movie, they're all trying to find a chick to bring to Don's Plum. because They're just what... trying to find pussy is really what it's come down to. A posse of fellows. Trying they're to a do posse of fellows. You... Yes. Trying to find pussy. A pussy posse, if you will. I won't. Toby Maguire is going to have no game, and he's going to hit on every chick that comes through this really amazing jazz club, and none of them want anything to do with him. My favorite line from this whole bit is uh, Toby asks the woman out, and she says, I'm in a relationship. And Toby's response is, no, you're not. Yeah, he is kind of weirdly goofy in this movie, like the faces that he's yeah. going to make. And I respect it. I like that he's like just just going for it, just like being a, a doofus uh, in this thing. And it kind of works for the character. It he's does. Doing, which I guess the character is just him. So I don't know, whatever. It, it felt natural to me. And I guess it is. It, it felt natural because it is natural. So just naturally, Toby Maguire got no game. That's the takeaway. This uh, this whole opening, like the opening bit of the movie, like normally when we talk about scenes in films, we'll say this scene happens, this scene happens, this scene happens. We can't really do that here because it's like three scenes cut together. We have Toby in the jazz club asking women out. We have... Uh, Amy, who's been, you know, Jeremy, like rejected by Jeremy Sisto, gets picked up by Kevin Connolly. And then in some hallway, somewhere, Leonardo DiCaprio is talking to a friend of his who looks like he's fucking 12 years old. Just walks up to his friend and like his friend is like talking on a, a mid 90s cell phone. So one of those big monstrosities. And Leo's like, hey, what's up, bro? Hey, bro, I need your phone. Like, Let me have your phone, bro. Grabs his phone. I gotta get late tonight, bro. Like, the, the word, man, if you want a drinking game that will kill you, take a shot anytime someone says bro. Or tries to put their dick in something, including their own hands, because one of my favorite choices that's gonna happen right here is Leonardo DiCaprio is on the cell phone calling a girl, and he's gonna kind of lay back against the wall, and then he just shoves his hand down his pants, and he just kind of, like, cups his penis... And his pants are kind of sagging a little bit, and he's just he's just talking to this chick, and he's kind of starting to, like, half rub one out, and his friend is just waiting there, like, come on, man, get off the phone, I want to go to the bar. And it's, it's a fun, knowing that it's improv I wanted to know, did, is this how 90s Leo talked to people on the phone? There's also a moment, I think, in the same hallway bit, where Leo's like, man, fucking cannot score to save my life tonight. And his friend says, oh, man fucking pulled a grizz huh and uh, that was like i just wrote that down because i'm like the fuck does that mean (laughs) 
Oh, that Fucking good old Polar 90s Grizz? thing. What? What is yeah, I've never heard Grizz that mean? No idea. That might have been like an inside pussy posse term. I guess so, but we kind we're, we're constantly like jumping back to the jazz club, and whatever the hell is happening in this jazz club is something should be happening everywhere. We have the singer doing his thing. There's a band behind him, a trio of dancers in front of him, a jazz singer back by the bar behind Toby and whatever girl he's talking to, just doing her thing, like singing or crooning out lines like, I met a man. He said he wanted to fuck me. Climax. Fuck me. He wanted to fuck me. We've got like this burlesque energy. We've got this jazz singer who's called Acid Jazz Singer is his credit. And he looks like some sort of like Baron Samidi kind of figure out of folklore. <laughs> He's got the sunglasses on. He's got the sort of zoot suit. Like the, the whole thing yeah. is just working. And his voice is gravelly and great. And the angles are going to be so j- sort of jarred and... Everything's lit with kind of smoke and lights yeah. that when this movie opened, I was immediately intrigued because of this stuff. I'm like, oh, right. this is much more interesting than I expected this film to be. Yeah, just wait. Just uh, <laughs> give the movie a little bit. Don't worry. It, uh, it'll be exactly what you thought it was going to be. It, it, that's true. But <laughs> for a little while there, I was like, oh, wait, there's, uh, there's some hope. And now, <laughs> my notes, it says, and now, ass. Man ass. Oh, we just, yeah. We just cut to a scene, and it's like... It's right in there. Some man's ass in the camera, and uh, this one I kept calling Black Widow. Her name is Sarah. I think at some point someone refers to her as Black Widow, but she, her and the guy who's just standing around without any pants on, they apparently just fucked. And she is of the mindset, like, uh, okay, dude, it's... It's time to fucking go. Let's move on out here. Well, the really great thing, too, is that not only have they just had sex, you'd never be able to tell except for the fact that he delivers the line, we just had sex. And that actually took me aback for a second because I'm like, okay, I get you because you're totally naked and standing in the corner of this frame. But Uh Sarah is completely clothed, like to yeah. the point where she still has her boots on. She has a button-up shirt, and every button is done immaculately. Like, she... this girl has not taken off any of her clothes Yeah, I at any point this evening. Could not wait to get her clothes back on after fucking this guy, which... God if damn, she even that... took them off, I don't know. Yeah, if if anything, it may have been a very quick one-and-done situation. She's like, okay, dick happened, dick done, just get the fuck out, man. Because we do get this kind of moment where he's like, yeah, I think I love you. Will you come to Don's Plum with me? Or not even Don's Plum, The Plum. She's like, well, I guess I'll come with you since I failed to come with you earlier or just a second ago. Damn, that's right. (laughs) And he takes this in stride because his response to this, and this is where you're like, okay, this guy is either some sort of like improv beat poet genius or he's just (laughs) fucking high as balls. Because his response to that is like, you know, you have a really beautiful little bathroom. I really enjoyed it in there. And I'm like, wait, what? What does that mean? She just told you she failed to get off, um, which is a whole nother thing, too. Like, it, it always kind of baffles me a little bit where it's not 
completely your partner's like sole responsibility right like if, if it's not happening for you talk about it during yeah, like that's cool work some stuff out you know but no yeah but his response is just like yeah i really enjoyed like you know your bathroom <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> Well, anyway, so she agrees. Okay, yes, I'll come to this diner with you. We cut back, We go back to Toby. He meets Juliet, probably the coolest character in the movie. I think comes off the best. Yeah, no, who this is actually played by is Jeremy Sisto's sister. Oh! Meadow Sisto. Okay. And she's one of the hottest fucking girls I have seen in a really long time. I immediately looked up her IMDb to see what else that she's been in so that I could possibly like perv on her some more. Yeah. And she really has not done a lot, which is surprising considering what? she's sort of from a family of actors. But at the same time, well, yeah, nothing. Mean, now that both Toby Ke- and Kevin have dates and, and Assman has have a date, we now go to the titular Don's Plum. A.K.A. The Plum. The Plum, yeah. And Ass, or what is Ass names? Ass, man gonna, Ass. You can call him Ass Man, that's fine. I'm just gonna call him Ass. Yeah, I, I know he has a name, but he's just Ass to me. And Sarah, they're at a diner. <laughs> I think Sarah said something like, I really don't like grunge. Like, oh, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's bold. Yeah, that's, bold, just Sarah. throwing that out there in 1995, huh? Yeah. While dressed all in black and, like, freebasing your crack rock in the bathroom, she yeah. doesn't like grunge. Oh, go figure. Uh, Ass is playing the harmonica, which I'm like, fuck you, dudes. Don't play your harmonica at a diner, you dipshit. Okay, if something's even too douchey for Benji, then <laughs> that's really not something to be done in a public place. Toby arrives uh, with Juliet, and him and Ass, they do... <laughs> They, they do something that normally when you see it in movies, this is shorthand for these characters are assholes. Uh, they shake hands, and when they part hands, they do a, they do a snap together. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, anytime you see that in a movie, that is the movie telling you, yeah, these guys are douchebags. But this the movie bros. this movie is just like, yeah, we're bros, man. What's up? Like, this is just meant to say, yeah, yeah, they're cool. They're cool bros, man. They're just hanging out. Well, some of these improvised handshakes were way too intricate and sort of <laughs> idiometer effect ingrained into their just sort of muscle movements that I think these are just the handshakes they use with each other. Kevin, uh, Kevin arrives. I'm Again, I'm sure Kevin Connolly has a name in this movie. He's just Kevin. I just have him down as Kevin. Yeah, that's fair. He brings along Amy the Hitchhiker, which, like, bold move, bro. Like... Just some woman you saw on the street. Like, yeah, come have dinner with me and my friends. Okay, cool. Whatever. Well, this is another sort of strange thing where all of them, yeah, seem to be trying very hard to make sure that they have a lady with them when they go to, quote unquote, the plum. So we've got Leonardo DiCaprio who spent time like calling up every woman that's sort of programmed into his cell phone or that he knows off the top of his head. I don't know. Um. But but no dice there. Although I did like that in his improv when he's talking to one of them, he's like, "So have you have you been thinking about me?" Oh no. <laughs> okay then. <laughs> like I I like that he's like you've been thinking about me. No. Oh all right. Yeah he, he built in the rejection. But he's trying to just call up every chick he knows. Kevin mm. Connolly's picking hitchhikers up off the street. Like ass man is trying to get this girl that you know he just had a one night stand with. Like please come to this diner with me. And so it's seeming very important that these guys arrive with women. And so when we arrive at, quote-unquote, the plum, to find that it's just a Denny's... Yeah. What? Like, wait, why, why is it so important for you to come with, you know... 
a lady. Uh, so uh, we meet Don, the owner of the rest of Don's Plum, is apparently just named Don Plum. Uh, he gives us our first bathroom confessional, which mm-hmm. we will be seeing many times. Not from him, but from just anybody involved with this film at some point in the movie. I think aside from Leo's the only one who doesn't do this. Uh, some At any point, a character will just be in the bathroom, look in the mirror, talking to themselves. Uh, this will happen, and it's, and it's always mic'd in a really odd way, where it's like... They didn't have a you know a shotgun or boom microphone capturing audio. They just had like the a microphone on the camera, like you would have in a camcorder. Just ca- and there because there's so much room noise anytime that we're in the bathroom uh, capturing this. It's part of like the art, man, because you know the internal monologue space is all just within <sighs> the empty cavity of your skull, and it echoes. You know what's sad is that you kind of have a point there. With- <laughs> <laughs> that this may have actually been, I kind of could see this being an artistic choice just to auditor, auditorially to separate it from the rest of the film maybe or maybe they just didn't have a goddamn microphone when they filmed yeah no scenes. I mean it's not but I'm just saying like we can that's the great thing about avant-garde experimental cinema from the mid 90s is like you can find a pretentious <laughs> bullshit reason to explain anything it's great so yeah these, these bathroom shots are just crazy yes Enter Mr. Leonardo DiCaprio. In the douchiest way possible. Looks at the fish, you know, whatever. Comes in, he's alone, sits down, and I'm pretty sure the first thing, like, after the hand, the handshake snaps, just says, do you ladies masturbate? Just trying to get to know you here. Like, it's the first and- thing he says upon sitting down. Which, in all fairness, like, is not too far removed from, like, the first question I generally ask people when I meet them. So, which is generally, like, what kind of sex are you into? But, because masturbation, like, uh, I don't necessarily care as much about that unless they masturbate in an interesting way. But first of all, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to just come in and he's going to tap on that fish tank, like, really heavily, really yeah. loud. <laughs> the douchiest thing to do to to fish and the oh. other thing that was kind of weird about it though is the way that it was shot and i was trying to think about this timeline wise i think it's just a coincidence so the camera is going to get him from the other side of the fish tank and he's mm-hmm. going to come in and bend down and kind of peer through it in a very similar parallel shot than as one of his iconic shots in the Boslerman Romeo and Juliet movie when he first meets Juliet oh, peering wow. through the fish tank. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's so true. And so at first I was thinking, like, is this a sort of just a reference, like a little tongue-in-cheek homage to the fact that, you know, he's just been in this big movie and this is one of, like, there were posters of that yeah. made of him peering through the fish tank. So I remember but the scene pretty vividly. It's but It's not. No, it was filmed this, earlier. So they, they filmed this in 95 and he wouldn't start filming... Uh, Romeo and Juliet, I think, until 96. It was, I think he was actually on the set filming it when they were trying to sort of get preliminary screenings put together. So oh, it was okay, very yeah. close together because um, Boslerman's Romeo and Juliet was, I believe, 96, even though it's yeah. often credited as 97. So it, yeah, it came close to back to back. But yeah, this is just a coincidence that yeah, we got Leonardo well, peering through this, this fish Romeo tank. and Juliet will actually figure it into a timeline I have about this movie like later on, but that's like after we're done talking about the plot of the movie, which the plot, oh my God, is is just now kicking off. 
Oh, don't you worry. That three-act structure. Oh, my God. Three-act... Fuck your three-act structure. Fuck your Sid Fields. Fuck your Robert McKees and your Save the Cat bullshit. No, we're going to sit here and we're going to talk at a goddamn diner. It worked for Andre, man. Although, actually, that's not true. I'm not sure it does work for Andre. It... Andre, you could at least say, did it a little bit better. Andre, my dinner with Andre, which is just a film of two guys sitting at a restaurant talking. That's all it is. But it was written by actual playwrights who specialize in writing that type of narrative. A narrative that is very contained because it's meant for the stage. It works when when an experienced playwright does it. It doesn't really work as well when... A guy who is friends with popular kids doesn't, but neither. Are here you nor saying there. that the ingenious improv of these young, talented people is not akin to some sort of like stoppered play? Is that what you're saying right now? Yes, of course that's what I'm saying. How can it not be what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm just making sure. <laughs> okay. Because they wouldn't so- agree with you. Which is another thing, is these kids got really excited. They were like, yeah, I want to do all my own lines. And I was like, that, said that, that can't go uh, well. Yeah. Well, anyway, Leo sits down, asks about whacking it. Uh, a waitress walks up, and this waitress is, like, kind of doing a Lucy from Twin Peaks voice. I don't know if you... Yes. Kn- you know, okay, yeah, I'm not the only one who heard that. Great. Um, were you about <laughs> to ask me if I was familiar with Lucy from Twin Peaks? I, I was about to ask you if you thought that this waitress was doing the okay. same kind of voice. I know goddamn well, unfortunately, how well you are versed in the world of Twin Peaks. I was going to say, I I know we tend to block out the time we spend with each other, but <laughs> I don't think anything could block out that every Nine single... hours straight that we spent watching Twin Peaks Season 3? Yes, I still remember that time, Episode 8 haunts me to this day so that did happen so we can always at least say like it's not that so sitting through an hour of don's plum back to don's plum but what are they doing here talking about masturbation talking about masturbation uh i think yeah one of the girls says like i haven't done in like two months just haven't felt the need haven't felt the urge or whatever not too sure um, I forget exactly well, what her reasoning she was. Felt, now that I kind of remember it, it seems like she said that she felt ridiculous every time she tried to do it. Like, she couldn't ah. psych herself into it. Mm, Which, okay. yeah, in a yeah. way, at some point, there are going to be some things revealed about her character backstory. And when we sort of go back and look at some things, there are a lot of early warning signs that she might have some sort of like sexual abuse in her past, Mm -hmm. this being one of them. But at the time, we've kind of set her up to be more of a a frigid and yet very active character. So it comes as a surprise. A a heavy set woman walks by. Leo is just like, ha, she's fat. (laughs) <laughs> and Amber Benson loses her shit. Yeah, Amber's not into this. She's like, what the fuck, man? It's like, what gives you the right to be an asshole? And later the producers will talk about how they did try to push Leonardo in the direction of your character. His name is Derek, and he's just the biggest asshole you can possibly think of. So in a way, this is apparently on purpose, that like Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to do as much sort of Stradickery stuff as he possibly can. 
Strategical dickery is what that is. I think at some point Leo says, uh, Leo asks, like, ever had sex with a hooker? Which was actually kind of an interesting question because these kids are, what, like, 1920? The fact that he, he asked that in a way that he assumed that the answer, at least from some of them, would be yes. And it turns out the answer from some of them is yes because Kevin Connolly is like, well, I mean... Amber Benson is like the saddest girl in the world in Birkenstocks right now, so it's clear I'm not getting laid tonight, so I might as well tell this story about the time that I got like a hand job from a hooker. This upsets Amy, this this line of questioning. It upsets the Amy the hitchhiker. And she gets up to leave. Uh, I think Leo throws a shoe at her at one point. No, she throws her shoe at him. Oh, right, right, okay. So and then he throws a glass at her. So yes! And this is another thing that interviews will kind of make a little bit more interesting that Leonardo DiCaprio apparently did not like Amber Benson. So this is not in character. This is an actual people. Leonardo DiCaprio did not like Amber Benson, <laughs> thought that she did not shine on screen and was bringing the movie down and wanted her out of the film. And okay. so first of all, the... fuck you, Leo. Uh, she's fine. <laughs> I mean, this is all fair, but at the at the same time, they were like, "Well, we've uh, we've already shot, you know, some stuff with her in here, and also this was filmed over two days, so I'm not sure at what point this conversation happened. Like, if he just stood two up or three six days, hours in, I think I've heard and, sources that said it was three days of work for Leo. Fair enough, but I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is only on set like two or three days, and so if he just was like filming for six hours and then like stands up and like pulls somebody aside and was like, "Hey, this bitch has got to go," like I don't know, um, <laughs> but somehow this conversation happened. And so they're like, well, the only way to do that, because we need all the stuff we already shot, is that we can have you guys fight and she'll leave. Amber Benson was understandably a little bit hurt by having, yeah. you know, the, the writers and the producers come over to her and say, like, hey, we got to write you out of this, like, scene because, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't think you've got what it takes. And so she actually was legitimately upset. And yeah. I mean, the whole thing is improv, but like it was definitely improved in a very personal manner for her to kind of get as upset as she did and to like chuck her shoes at Leonardo DiCaprio so she takes off her Birkenstocks and she just like throws them at him um from across the table and uh yeah he just picks up the glass that's on the table and just like chucks it at her which also is a real glass like you can hear the thing yeah. shatter and I'm like that's actually dangerous dude like dude, yeah and you can kind of tell like after he did it that it was like this thing that he'd gotten caught up in the moment of you know like the improv or whatever because he actually looks kind of like himself oh my god what did I just do yeah and yeah they, they shake it off so but yeah she got she got legit kicked off the film there you go. And I have to say, like, they did at least give her character some comeuppance on that or whatever, because after she leaves, I think that she has she has her bathroom confessional as well. I forget exactly what is said, because most of the bathroom confessionals are pretty forgettable. But she goes outside and just takes a baseball bat to Kevin Connolly's Jeep and just goes to town on the thing, like, just smashes its window, smashes the all the headlights, the, the, the hood of the thing, just, like, completely goes for broke on that. Which, in all fairness, I mean, it was Leonardo's character that she had more of a spat with. So I'm not yeah. really sure that Kevin Connolly's Jeep deserved what's happening right now. Yeah, but, maybe it was actually Leo's, the character of Leo's Jeep, and, like, Kevin was borrowing it. And now, because, like, it happened on his watch, he's got to fix it or uh, whatever. Um, I think she's just mad. She's had a lot of feelings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think my next note here just says, Kevin has beat off to Flo. Flo is the waitress. This is something his character oh, says. Oh, when did we learn that he beat off the flow? I think around the same time, like right after Amy leaves, the hitchhiker leaves. 
Amber Benson, right after Amber Benson leaves, Kevin says something like that. Like, I've beat off to Flo. Flo is the best. She's great. Um, So she has the Lucy voice. She does this little kind of like hoppy dance whenever she comes up to anybody's table. Yeah, she's getting the orders wrong everywhere. So people are just like, oh, Flo, honey, like, you got to take this back. Like, come take this plate. Then she goes into the bathroom. And... Does she have the the Lucy voice in the bathroom? No, she does not. In fact, she goes into quite a deep husky voice. And what does she say? Keeps going on and on about how much she hates all the customers. Hates the fact that she blows her boss. Well, she hasn't blown the boss yet. So that's like another thing that's kind of interesting is that, yeah, she goes in there the first time and she's like, God damn, I hate these motherfuckers. Like, why in the world do I have to fucking do this? Like, <laughs> fuck everybody. And then she goes back and she, like, practices her Lucy voice a little bit. And so then she goes back out, right? And it's just kind of like, hi, guys, what can I get you? And then we learn that she hates this table so much that she goes to her boss in her little kind of, like, giggly flow persona. And it's like, will you switch my shift? And he's like, why do you want to be switched? And she's like, I just do... I'll blow you, right? Like, I'll have sex with you, like, whatever. So, like, she hates these motherfuckers so much that she is willing to just blow her boss for a shift change. That is a very strong statement to make on this group of teenagers. Uh, shortly after that, we get a bathroom confessional from Don, where he just says, Flo, suck me off. I'm good. Yeah, he is. Yeah, you are, Don. I love that in the bathroom confessionals, usually we get this, like, duality of the people, right? So it'll be like, Flo is all bubbly and whatever out by the tables, and then she goes in, and we find that she's actually a much more serious, fed-up person. Amber Benson has this interior of insecurity. Don is exactly the same person he is on the outside. Gotta give it to Don. He's an honest man. He is as he presents himself. Outside of the bathroom, he's like, I'm great. Inside of the bathroom, I'm great. And you are, Todd. You are. One thing that I forgot to mention when it came up, and it's really important, the preliminary lead-up to the sex between Don Plum and Flo the waitress was Don Plum's pre-sex talk game, which started with, you know, sometimes when you want to go to the store because you want some toothpaste, and you just, you really need that toothpaste... But the store is closed. Yeah, you really want that toothpaste, don't you? And she's like, yeah, I want the toothpaste. He's like, yeah, tell me you want that toothpaste. And they're they're starting to kind of just like grind up on each other. And this is his dirty talk is just repeating. You want that toothpaste. So great. That works for Flo. So, so bizarre. Leo out of nowhere just says, my balls itch. But there's this weird, weird thing he does where he says, my balls itch. And it, in one shot, then the camera cuts to a different angle, but it's an angle in which Leo is doing this very deep thoughts kind of look. So it comes off like he just says, my balls itch, and then internally says, but why? <laughs> but why indeed, Leonardo, <laughs> why indeed? Oh, God, yes. Toby has a confessional. I honestly forget what the hell he says uh, in, in that. Oh, no, that's what's great about the Toby confessional. Okay, okay what so the, the Toby, Toby confessional? confessional is pretty much exactly like the Dawn confessional. So there are two characters in this in which okay. their outsides match their insides. And Toby will occasionally sing in a weird kind of character voice. <laughs> and... 
then he gets into the bathroom and he just sings again and so in apparently his entire inner space is just humming in his head and I, singing and it's kind of precious what i really enjoy about toby mcguire in this movie just overall is like he's not afraid to be a complete goof and he does complete goof really well and it's kind of a i it's a, he's adorable in this film to be quite honest, I really appreciate him in this thing. That's the sad thing is because I felt like that too watching this, where I liked him, but I also don't want to like him because he apparently doesn't have enough spine to to back up that decision. We'll so. get into that, but yeah, that is unfortunate when you understand why this film is not seen as much as it is, is because of Tobey Maguire, but we'll get into that. So there's that, there's a montage of food and eating and whatever uh they play i never so benji have you ever snorted sweet and low for a high take a drink <laughs> i mean i know a lot of people put shit up their nose in the 90s and the 80s really but sweet and low that's a that's a new low to be fair, though, I did know this kid who used to snort pixie sticks in science <laughs> class. So. I mean, they are kind of made for that. So he would tear off the bottom and then, like, pour it out onto the desk and then, like, kind of push it into a little pile. And then he would tear off the other end and then he would just snort them in the middle of class. So, yeah. <sighs> yep. Apparently there is precedent. It is revealed that Ass, whose name is Brad, is bisexual. Which apparently is a really big deal to half this table yeah in 1995 when this movie was being made uh to be a male actor who you know hopefully had a few like i was hoping to have some sort of future as a teen idol doing a role where you're saying you're bisexual is actually kind of bold no i mean that's actually very true and very legit the chick who's gonna respond the strongest to leonardo and that's the other thing is like leonardo kind of outs ass man and it's that's totally not cool and he like seems upset he doesn't talk about it more which like leo let brad talk about it as much as he wants to but don't make him talk about it it's it was a it was a strange kind of improv and the person who's going to respond the strongest to this is going to be sarah who, which is weird considering meanwhile, what happens next yeah, has been kind of set up as a queer character because her girlfriend, I don't know if it's established as her girlfriend, shows up at Dawn's Plum and yeah. they they get into the booth. They're kissing each other. They're feeling each other up for like the good part of the movie. And I was like, awesome, because I was a gay kid in the 90s and this was cool um, that there was actually some groping happening in public <laughs> on a booth. Because I was like, yeah, that that's that in itself is kind of bold, and nobody seems to like notice it either of their friends, which is kind of curious. So I'm thinking, oh, cool, she has something in common with this dude that she just had sex with that she apparently doesn't have anything else in common with. But no, she reacts very negatively and very homophobically. She says, like, I think it's okay for a woman to be bisexual. I just don't know about a guy being bisexual. Oh no, she even goes to a worse place than that. She's like, we just had sex and you didn't tell me that you fuck dudes. So now I could possibly have AIDS. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, she went there. And um, luckily, I think it, it was Meadow's sister, maybe, who just kind of perks up and says like, Actually, statistically, way more heterosexual people have HIV right now. Oh, Juliet. So, you were too good for this movie. And I was movie. like, yeah. Yeah, man. Meta sister. She's, she's my girl. But 
yeah, I was like, whole okay, well, this, this movie just took a took a dark turn. Yeah, we watch a lot of movies that have some homophobia, and I feel like homophobia comes up a lot in uh, in the films uh, that we've been talking about. I think we need to stop watching movies from the '80s and early '90s. That's true, but we're not going to. So no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> so just lock and load for that, you know. Treasure trip of homophobic ride. As that happens. She makes out with her friend. Some fancy people come in to see Don. And Don takes them back to a bar that apparently exists at this place. And Kevin is like, hey, hey, guys, that woman, I, I think she's a producer. I just, I, I, I think I just auditioned for her. I don't know if I got her or not. And like, they're like, hey, guy, go, go talk to her, man. Go, go talk to this woman. And so, Kevin, we depart from the diner portion of the movie for a brief moment, while Kevin Conley goes back to the bar of Don's Plum to talk to this uh, female producer. I just call her the reverse Weinstein. The re- yeah, she... Re- <laughs> reverse Weinstein. Um, she. Do you want to kind of discuss this scene? So, he's going to go introduce himself again and say... Hey, I auditioned to be in your movie, and she's a little tipsy, and her husband has gone to the bar to get them more drinks, and she just starts coming on to this kid hard. She's like, yo, you're such a cutie. There's just so many things I could do to you. What what would you say if I told you to come back to my place right now, and I could give you just the best sex you've ever had in your life? I, oh, by the way, you know, if you do, I, I think I could, you know, put you in, in my movie. And, uh... He's like, oh, really? Like, th- that's, t- that's two birds, one stone. Or He's just so happy. One, one cock. I get laid and I get in a movie? Wow. Yeah, and later he'll describe this movie. This is Spielberg with a vagina. Like, this is, this is great. Oh, and God. this entire time, I'm waiting for her to sort of turn in some way to that like she's testing him or something but no uh, she, she just wants to get into 19 year old kevin Connolly, and i'm just sitting here going like why because he looks like he's a child <laughs> i'm like i'm not even attracted to this dude and this character is supposed to be older than i am right now so uh, yeah it was curious like what she saw and but apparently you know people saw things in kevin Connolly in the 90s because you know he was part of the pussy posse so her husband comes back, or boyfriend, partner, whatever, and she starts talking in code instead and said, well, I mean, so if you want that part, call my my secretary. Or actually, here, let me give you my home phone number. Think about it and call me tonight. And then her, her boyfriend's like, yeah, we'll be up late. And then she's like, yeah, I really like him. He's so cute. So he, Let's... yeah, he skips off. I think the boyfriend's, he's in on it. He He's down. Like, fucking, yeah. Get that know, yeah, on. Kevin Connolly might be in for a time tonight if he goes oh over boy. to their place. Like, So, yeah. We, we just have this little interlude of the reverse Weinstein. Yeah. Leo has, bill, like, Billy Bob teeth in for whatever reason. Yeah, where did those come from? I don't know. He just has, like, goofy redneck Billy Bob teeth for no reason. Wait, does Billy Bob have bad teeth? Uh, when I say Billy Bob, I'm kind of like, I don't refer to Billy Bob Thornton. I'm referring to, okay. like, the stereo, a stereotype of a redneck who, like, has jutting front teeth. Okay. I was like, my mind immediately went to Billy Bob Thornton. And I'm like, I... Billy Bob's an oddly sexy man. I've never noticed him to have such teeth, so... Ethan Sloopley shows up. Which one's that? The big fat guy. 
Oh, the drunk dude with Dale Wheatley or... Oh, yes, with the... Not the director, but the writer. The producer, yeah, the writer, producer. The producer of this film. Dale who Whitley, may, who Wheatley, may or may not been the reason I'm watching this film. <laughs> and because I saw an interview with him, too, where he talked about playing that role. And he was so upset because he could even tell during the the quote-unquote performance, he was performing it terribly, and so he was getting oh. more and more self-conscious. And oh, boy. then, yeah, then he did his sort of fall-down drunk thing, and he's like, well, at least I fell down well, but everything else was terrible. And the Leonardo DiCaprio came over to him afterwards while he's sitting in a booth, and he's just like, it wasn't that bad, bro. <laughs> and oh, so, oh, thanks, Leo. He That's... felt comforted by that, that thanks, Leonardo DiCaprio cheered him up by this kind of quasi-insult. So, yeah, that was Dale. Yeah, so uh, they ask for like they ask for spare change. They get into kind of a a kerfuffle with the members of the diner. Don throws them out of his plum. Although they did have the the quote or one of the quotes of the episode that reminded me kind of of the "I am the victim of nocturnal rapture" from Troll Two, and these were, "We are your designated transients this evening," was uh, the line <laughs> that. <laughs> He delivered when he came in. And so he's going to just be this derelict person that obviously hasn't showered in probably months. He's got this gross t-shirt on. He's acting all drunk, but he stumbles in. And that is the line he delivers as, we are your designated transients this evening. Awesome. Around this time, we kind of are given a dramatic beat or a dramatic curveball, if you will. Yeah, the, the first of, yeah, of a few. Yeah, because it has like really when you sum up like what this what has been happening in this diner, it's just been friends shooting the shit more or less, with a little bit of drama from transients, transients and hitchhikers. But really, that is it. Suddenly, Leo is he's looking really disturbed, and he, they're like, "Hey, hey, man, what's uh, what's going on?" Just stop looking at me, please. Please stop looking at me. And it's, like, really awkward. And I remember, like, I wrote my notes. I'm just like, this is really awkward. Like, it, I'll give this scene credit. It does a good job of getting across how fucking awkward this just got. Because something's wrong. So that was part of my question. So nothing sets him off? Because I thought I missed something. No, somebody absolutely said something or did After something. they leave, okay. he's just really disturbed says stop looking at me and they're like are you do you want to talk about it like and kevin and toby are like really are showing legitimate compassion like dude what's wrong man is what what's going on and he just blurts out my dad killed himself shot himself in the fucking head man and the table is just like what i think one of them maybe it was kevin connelly was actually said the response lines I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. Which, what do you say? Which is not a great sign in improv. Yeah, I don't know what to say. (laughs) You basically, that's the opposite of yes and in improv. (laughs) You're given something, you're like, I have no response to this thing that has been introduced into the conversation. (laughs) And I feel like that one was on Leonardo, though, because he really did just drop that out of... Yeah. Nowhere to the Which, point where I thought I missed something. I, I doubt that like in in the making of this thing, I doubt that this is something like Leo just came up with out of nowhere. He would like the producer, director, whoever probably said to him, okay, we want to take this in a different direction. Uh, this is the third day of filming. Uh, Leo revealed that your dad just killed himself. 
Okay, great. And and Leo, you know, ever the actor, just like, all right, yeah, I can play that. Let's yeah. do this. I'm going to do this. They do that. The whole group is silent. Leo goes off. Uh, Sarah, who has been sitting next to Leo the entire time. Important to note, Sarah, Jenny Lewis, Rilo Kiley. So just to, just to visualize that a little bit is that, yeah, our Sarah is, is being played by Rilo Kiley. Oh, okay. Are you familiar with the band Rilo Kiley? I am not. Okay. Yeah, so there there's a band called Rilo Kiley and Jenny Lewis, aka Sarah, is the lead singer of it. Oh. Well, okay. They actually reached a decent level of popularity in the early two thousands. Oh, okay. Alright, well my my bad. Not familiar. Yeah, but, uh, well I shall come I'll look I'm not up. surprised by your failures. I'll look them up later. Proceed. She goes off to find Leo, uh, and they make out. As you do after you've just revealed that your dad committed suicide. That's that's an aphrodisiac. At some like while that's happening and they're making out, we cut back to the the front of the cafe, and Leo's twelve year old looking friend from earlier walks in along with Nikki Cox. So he got a girl because yeah. you need a girl to enter the plum. And he got Nikki Cox, anyone. which. Okay, great. Hello, Nikki Cox. How you doing? Yeah, just another another one of the posse along for a ride. Leo tries to fuck Sarah. Yeah, and it's it is so teen boy. Like he just sort of engulfs her in a strange way, and is sort of just wiggling around a little bit. And another one of my favorite moments is when Sarah just improv says out loud, "Yeah, this isn't doing anything for me." I believe that. <laughs> it's so great. That happens. Uh, Toby and Keith are kind of uh, Toby. Toby and Keith. Toby and Kevin, not Toby Keith. He's not in this movie. Toby and Kevin are fighting because Toby thought Kevin was pushing Leo too far, or like, and Kevin's like, "Why aren't you trying to be his friend and help it?" And like this, this argument kind of goes in a loop for a little bit, which actually, I noticed like this is actually true to life. This is how. An argument like this would kind of go down. Like, it's just a Mobius strip of logical fallacies. It just makes no sense. Which is also why we generally script things. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have other people watch them. Yep, pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, They fight. So they begin to fight. We find out Sarah was molested as a child. Okay, wait, now let's set the scene here. So, yeah. okay, sorry. First of Spoilers. all, Sarah, well, yeah, last we saw Sarah, she's underneath Leonardo DiCaprio. So he's trying to kind of wiggle out of his pants. And then she stops him and kind of informs him, I'm not going to fuck you in a bar. This is a public space. And then he gets a little bit grumpy about this. And so she points out, you don't have to be a mopey bastard about the fact that I'm not going to have sex with you in public right now. And then he turns on her and starts calling her a whore like he does with all girls. Yeah. And she sort of says, you know, don't don't treat me like the Birkenstock chick because that's not what this is about. I am no Birkenstock chick. Good, sir. Yeah, he, he will not listen to this. And so instead he starts not only calling her a whore, but hissing at her like a cat where he's like, he's like, go away. Like, uh, <laughs> like whore. And I'm like, what the hell is happening right now? So, yeah, he starts, uh, like, Tomcat hissing at her as he's calling her a whore. And that's when she sort of decides, yeah, maybe I should step away from the situation. This is 
This is not going well. This is this is not going well. This dude's a little nuts. So she goes into the bathroom, and yet somehow her first response from this is, man, you really blew that one. That would have probably been a great fuck. And you're like, wait, what scene were you just in just now? Because pretty sure you weren't feeling it, and this guy just hissed at you in a not fun way. This was not some sort of, you know, whimsical sex exchange. And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere... She just kind of reveals, like, it wasn't your fault with Uncle Jerry. <laughs> like, whoa, we're just dropping that molestation bomb. And we know it's a molestation reference because the dude's name is Uncle Jerry. Yeah, I mean, what else is it going to be? This is something I wrote down that there are moments, this is one of them, but there are other moments in this movie that break away from anything that could be considered coherent drama or coherent dramatic storytelling and just feel like actors performing a scene in an acting class. This is just acting dramatic for the sake of being able to emote as hard and as loud as possible. As someone who has been in a number of acting classes, this is how it came off to me. It's like, I know these things. I know the pretensions of an actor because this is exactly what I did in college okay yes aka because he is a pretentious individual we we got there eventually circled around but so she was molested by her uncle jerry as mentioned before this is something that does strangely enough make sense for her character in the way that she reacts and talks about sex um so this does seem like they did kind of pay attention to that arc in a certain way but There definitely wasn't a narrative arc there. So it's sort of this reveal makes sense for some of her earlier things, but narratively, (laughs) it was just dropped out of nowhere in the way that you could say that Leonardo having an absent suicide committed father maybe contextualizes partially some of the dick things he does. But at the same time, the narrative just wasn't quite there to build to that reveal. But yeah, so she's gonna, I don't even know if we really see her much again, because the next thing we get is just Leonardo coming out into the street where his pussy posse is just throwing down. Yep. Just, like, throwing out those weak punches like a couple of little teenage boys. <laughs> Come on, bro! Yeah, bro! It, yeah, steel, it's, it's bro. not great. And so Leonard just swoops on in there, and he's taller than both of them, so he just kind of hugs <laughs> them both around the neck yeah. and just tells them, guys, the violence isn't necessary. We're friends. And magically, through the power of his charisma, he stops the fight. Yeah, they hug it out. He says something like, in 10 years, will this mean a goddamn thing, man? Come on. So irony pin number 27. Yeah, oh boy. Whatever irony we're on to. But then they burn a shirt. Yeah, Brad, Brad, he's like, hey, I'm still in this movie. (laughs) I'm burning something. I'm burning a shirt or... I don't know. He's. I mean, did that shirt have any sort of symbolic significance? Because that was another thing I missed. Um, why this shirt? No, it has nothing. It's it's nothing. I okay. swear, it really was just that actor trying to make sure he was still seen. He's like, I gotta do something crazy. I'm burning a thing. Whoa! Yeah. If you want some eyes on you, just light something on fire. Light it, light something off. And this apparently is the catharsis that is necessary. For them to all just, like, hug it out and, like, you know what, bros? You're awesome. 
Let's head on out of here. And they tumble off into the night. That also kind of looks like a day shot. I couldn't quite tell. I, I couldn't tell if this was supposed to be the dawn or... They had to, like... This, like, it really was either dawn or meant to be sunset. I couldn't tell, but it was definitely not night. Either dawn was approaching or sunset was upon them. I don't know. It was strange. The credits begin. We get a few, like, moments of, like, whatever happened after Kevin seeing his Jeep and freaking out because the hitchhiker beat the shit out of it. Calling up the producer on a payphone. Ass man asking Rilo Kylie if he can see her again or spend more time with her again. Toby asking Meadow Sisto if they can go out again. As you should, because goddamn Meadow Sisto in this movie. Wow. We're going to get no answers to any of these questions, but it, they are the, the relationship cliffhangers. Were other bonds forged in this long, dark night of the soul that eventually saw the dawn? See, 90s avant-garde cinema, you this make it This is deep. true. The things I noticed in the credits, uh, one, the gaffer was a guy named Cool Breeze. No, he's the slappy. He's I took that note too. Oh, he's the gaffer as well. Amazing. I totally saw that too. I wrote it in my notes. I went to go look that motherfucker up to see why his name is Cool Breeze. Couldn't find anything on him. It's his only credit on IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other interesting thing I noticed the credits, in the special thanks of this movie, among many other names, are the significant names of Lars von Trier's and Brian Singer. Oh, I don't know why the Brian Singer, but I know why the Lars von Trier. Yeah, that, well, we'll get to that. Uh, Do you know why the Brian Singer, like, I have no clue. I have zero clue why Brian Singer would be would be special thanked in this movie. Oh, man. I, I have need to wonder to if, it, like, if it's not even, like, it's just a different guy named Brian Singer, or because that's a common name, but, like, what? Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's Because he'd be around their age at the time, right? Yeah, pretty much. Interesting. Another mystery. Another quest. So, that is the story, so to speak, of the 1995-2001 film Don's Plum. Now it's time for the actual story. The actual story. Okay, so, here's the thing... About Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobin Maguire, Kevin Connolly, et al., circa mid-90s. They were part of a group of cats in Hollywood just called the Pussy Posse. The name came about from a 1998 article uh, from the New Yorker called Leo, Prince of the City. That really for the purposes of this of telling the story of this movie is not terribly important, but it does really give you a sense of how untouchable Leo was to people in the industry at that time and why whatever he said went. Although Nancy Sales, who wrote the article, did mention in it that she was pretty sure this entitled spoiled rich motherfucker was going to be a nobody in five years. Yeah. That's the best thing about that article. Yeah. And Nancy, yeah. If he had kept going the way that he was, probably that actually probably is a legit fun yeah. thing. But. I think because like shortly after ninety eight, ninety seven, like he did like what was it like the beach, and then I think in two thousand two, two thousand three, he began to work with Martin Scorsese. So yeah, he probably kind of figured uh, I need to do a different, take a different direction. Well, I didn't even mean career wise. I just meant all of his sort of partying and womanizing. 
that he did in the Pussy Posse around that time hand. period. The career choices and the uh, the partying, like, I think uh, there's a relation there, but that's that's just my take. Are you saying late nights of alcohol and drugs caused him to accept the script read for the beach? Yes, I yes, that's what I'm saying. All right, the science works out. Go on. <laughs> they uh, they are all friends, and they have a friend who is also a playwright by the name of Dale, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he was one of them. Yes. They want to make a film uh, based on the play that Dale has written. They get funding for this film. London, where do they get the funding for this film? Okay, first of all, the McDonald's Happy Meal guy. No, not the McDonald's Happy Meal guy. The McDonald's Monopoly game guy. Spoiler, same fucking guy! Exactly. So if you want to know the true hero in all of this... No, but before we get into that funding, so there's a kind of a little bit of a clusterfuck with the script initially. Okay. That Dale was the one who wrote the Last Respects sort of script, which did weirdly get a shout-out in the improv of Don's Plum. So okay. Last Respects was initially a story that was a dark comedy about a group of kids that had taken the body, the dead body of their mentor, snuck him into a hotel to pay their last respects. So it's going to be like this thing around this dead body of their mentor. Okay. This sounds like a great fun time, and I really wish this movie had been made. Last respects. Yeah. So they pitched the script to people initially, and they thought that it needed a rewrite. So a couple of them, Dale included, spent a long time, a year almost, rewriting the script sat down with Leo and co at a table read. Leo reads a couple pages of it, is making fun of the writing, and then just says, no, this is shit, I'm not making it. And so Last Respects was scrapped. Meanwhile, this other guy comes in and sort of pitches, hey, well, what about this other movie, Saturday Night Club? And we don't have a script for that yet, but we want to kind of base it off of, you know, some stuff. And that was the, they said yes to, because they realized, hey, we can just improv this entire thing. Yeah. Those details are going to become important during the court case later. So mm. that is why I Fair I enough. went into them. Yeah. Yeah, we'd get this, uh, this guy who is the son of the dude who invented the McDonald's Happy Meal and the McDonald's Monopoly game. And so he went and he asked dad, can I get, what was it, like 70 grand yeah, to, to make like this that. movie? Like a or making a film in Hollywood with actual Hollywood actors, pretty small amount of money. It's no room budget, but then again, what is? <laughs> what, so. what can ever aspire to be? So yeah, they get this money from uh, the McDonald's Happy Meal guy, and they get Leo for two days because he was in between shooting some stuff. He was going to go off to shoot Marvin's Room. Do you remember the movie Marvin's Room? Did you ever see that? I did not. I feel like I should have watched that for the sake of <laughs> this research, but no, I never saw that. And I haven't seen it in a very long time. I saw it back around the time that it came out. I remember it being very sad because I think it's kind of another one of those Terms of Endearment movies where uh, okay. it's a just, I mean, movie where people are terminally ill or, or something, but it did have Meryl Streep in, and I believe it was Diane Keaton, All right. maybe. So. Solid cast. And uh, Leo played Marvin, so it's okay. uh, he was a lead against those two two ladies. So it was a a profile movie for him. I won't say high profile, but it was, mm. it was definitely a leg up in the industry. He did uh, he did that. Was it between uh, doing all those things? And from what I understand, while they were filming this, Leo was under the impression that he was making a short film. 
Uh, that is, yeah, word on the street was, hey, we're a group of really talented people, and we've got some kind of celebrity cachet, so we should just really film ourselves sitting around a booth with a camera and improv. Like, that was, that was the pitch. Mm-hmm. And every single one of these guys, because if I've learned anything from working in the industry, it's actually that if you tell an actor, hey, you want to come and just get some time on camera and you can improv all of your own stuff, 9.8 out of 10 of them think that's a fantastic idea, <laughs> which is kind of astounding to me because... They should know better. They should know the... More actors should know the story of Don's Plum and know better. I mean, just like acting and improv are two very different skill sets. Sometimes they go hand in hand. Like sometimes mm-hmm. someone will possess both of these skills, but they are not automatically cohesive. No. But no, every certain type of actor with a certain level of ego likes to to have it stroked in the way of saying, like, you you could do all your own stuff. It'll be brilliant. So they all signed up to do this. And then they found the diner that is actually named Don's Plum. And they thought this was great. So they decided to rename the movie after this diner that they were going to shoot at. It is now like a Denny's or something. It it is no longer Don's Plum. They went back to go look at it and it's been franchised off. But it was at one point. Yeah. Don's plum is actually a thing. So yes, so they film the thing. They film Leo. They shoot Leo out in three days, uh, f- like from what I've read. Uh, apparently, like t- at the end of the third day, he he really wanted to do, or like at the end of like one of the days, he really wanted to do a scene with a friend of his, and that's how we got that weird hallway scene at the beginning of the movie where he talks to his buddy who looks like he's twelve because that guy was just happened to be a friend of Leo's. And he, like, begged the crew, like, no, no, come on, stay stay on, let's film this one little scene. I swear it's going to be great. And they're like, fuck it, fine, put a light up here, <laughs> stand over there, mic them, are they mic'd? Okay, roll, action. Were they mic'd, though? I couldn't tell. They were, they weren't mic'd well. And when you, if, you know, being, like, reading that, like, that was something that was done very quickly at the last minute when you watch that scene, yeah, makes sense. I mean, it does kind of help contextualize why there was the scene with Leonardo outside of the diner. Because I was curious about that since I knew they only had them for so many days. At the end of it, at the end of the three days, Leo has to head off. He's got to do other stuff. And apparently just he talked to the director and the producer and all they said was just, guys, look, no matter what, just make me look good, okay? And they're like, you got it, man. We'll do it. And that was that. Uh, a little ways later, from what I could tell, and maybe you saw some other research related to this, Tobey Maguire came in. They did some reshoot, reshoots, which is how we got the the jazz club scenes, and you know the scenes with Sarah and Brad from the beginning of the movie, and, and what have you. And I guess because of those jazz club scenes, you know, Meadow Sisto called up Jeremy and like, hey, can you do a work a work an hour on this film and kick a girl out of your van? Yeah, can you come, like, kick this chick out of the car? I'm curious. What I could not find, I did not spend that much time trying to find it, but I did not come across how they knew Amber Benson or how she got involved, since it seemed like everyone in this film were already sort of well-established friends with each other. They hung out all the time. And since... Leonardo decided that he didn't like Amber Benson. I'm assuming that means that he didn't have a lot of interaction with her prior. So I don't know how she got involved. It is. It's odd to be sure. They do the reshoots, cut the film together. Uh, 
Le they get the word to Leo and Toby and everyone like, hey, we, we have a feature film. And they're all surprised like, whoa, whoa, feature film. What are you talking about? This was a short film. How did this become a feature film? And I can understand like if you thought that what you were sitting around shooting was material enough for a, a short 20 minute film and you were suddenly told, no, no, we just used everything and made a feature length film out of it. You'd be like, no, no, not all of that was good, man. Shooting ratios, come on, you can't do that. And based on my research, like I think there are court documents related to this on like the smokinggun.com from like 2003 or whatever, like going way back on the internet. They screen it, I think it was June 21st, 1996. And by all accounts, Leo is ecstatic at this film. He is like jumping <laughs> in the air. He is laughing in the aisles pumping his fists and as the as it credits go down he's like we fucking did it yes this is great and i this is odd but i honestly i really buy that i really get that leo probably was thrilled with this because at this point in his career he hadn't really done anything terribly artistic you know he was a he was a teen you know teen idol kind of guy and, like, he hadn't even, like, Romeo and Juliet had not even come out yet, which when that did, that was the most, I think, what you could call artistic thing he had done. I don't know. I mean, he had done What's Eating Gilbert Grape already, and that was independent. I mean, it wasn't really artistic, but it was independent. Yeah. He also did Total Eclipse. I can't remember what year that was, but it was around that time. Oh, okay. I think it was 94, 95, hmm. and that was very artsy. And I never saw that. I, never, that, I, I know nothing about that. I didn't even see that in his IMDb. I don't remember if it was a good film or not because I was too enamored and distracted by the fact that he plays a gay poet um, oh, well, there who you is go. in yeah. love with the guy who plays Lupin in the Harry Potter movies. Does it really so, need to be good at that point? Exactly. That's why I can't yeah. remember if it was good or not. I'm like, exactly. I don't care because he's a gay poet that's fucking Lupin. Like, I'm, I'm here for this. There so, you go. But... And that was always what was kind of surprising, too, when you have things like Brokeback Mountain that comes out years later and they're getting so praised for playing these gay characters. You're like, yeah, they're... I mean, that has been done before. <laughs> it's, it's a revolutionary <laughs> thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the same time, yes, it's, it's great that eventually more straight men decided that it was okay like okay. this is not actually the end of the world yeah. to play a gay character on screen but yeah at the time i was actually kind of in in defense of leonardo DiCaprio on this one because like hey i mean there's this 1994 film and for a young kid who is starting out in his third second movie something like that mm -hmm. that's actually a much sort of more interesting choice to me than somebody who already was fairly established in the middle 2000s. But well, anyway, Leo is happy with this. Uh, he introduces the director to his agents at CAA. They screen the film. They love it. They sign the director on the spot. It sounds like this is all going to work out pretty well. But then the real villain of this story emerges. And that's the most disappointing thing to me because the real villain of this piece... Who is the real villain of this piece, London? Toby Maguire's fragile ego. <laughs> God damn you, Toby Maguire's fragile ego. So the issue apparently that I could get that Toby has with this is that one, he doesn't come off as well as Leo does in the film, which 
Okay, dude, I'm sorry you think you didn't come off as well as Leonardo DiCaprio in a movie, but it is what it is, bro. He's the pretty one. He was given the dramatic beats. No, you're not going to come off as well as Leo does. Also possibly debatable because, like, his weird rubber faces and his singing I, were yeah. super watchable. Like I said, so. I... I really like Toby in this movie. I think he's really funny and he's do and to know that it was improvised that just speaks more highly of, of him to me after like prior to finding out why this movie isn't being shown he he's fucking adorable in this movie and it really bugs me that to find out that after all this Toby sees it one is not happy with how that he doesn't come off as good as Leo and two uh, is apparently offended by the things that are in the movie. Uh, the, the biggest offender, apparently, is some moment in the movie, I guess it's like towards the bit where they're talking about masturbation, that Toby says, well, a thing uh, I do, uh, or I used to do, is, like, you know, I'll take my pinky, and I kind of put it near my butthole, and apparently Leo's like, fuck you, you still do that. Well, I mean, he was like, yeah, I mean, there's all of these erogenous areas around the anus, and somehow that line stayed in, so Leonardo did not... His lawyers did not make them remove that comment, but Toby Maguire's lawyers in the lawsuit, in the settlement, that is actually in the paperwork is that they had to After remove removed. from the film when Toby Maguire <sighs> talks about liking vague anal stimulation while he masturbates. And I have never heard anything more self-conscious and petty in my entire life. Oh, God. Now, and that is the moment I lost all respect for Toby Maguire. Here's what's crazy to me. Going into this movie, you mentioned the lawsuit. Going into this movie, I had always heard about this film as the movie that Leo and Toby sued to stop from happening. But that's not necessarily the truth. What they did was counter-sue. The original lawsuit came from the producer of the film because Leo and Toby, or Toby's management, was calling up every producer in Hollywood and saying, if you distribute this film, you're going to make Leo mad. And that's why I referred to that piece from The New Yorker that talked about how untouchable Leo was. Because basically, these guys were hearing that the number one teen idol in Hollywood was going to be mad at them if they released a film. And they could not release this, like, the producers could not release this movie to save their lives. They called up, like, all these, like, distributors. They contacted the Sundance Film Festival, told them Leo would be upset if they ran it. It's just that, yeah, these kids are going to wreck a lot of people's hopes and dreams, apparently, even though this is a Don's Plum thing, because initially studios were interested and they were getting contracts. And so would you like to explain why a movie that is shot in two days on black and white film in a fairly avant-garde jarring style was so attractive to studio audience their studio distribution centers in 1995 well i forget i don't know if there's some sort of hidden answer to this that uh... there's not i'm just giving you a platform because i know you like those <laughs> well the obvious answer is this is a movie that stars leo dicaprio and Tobin mcguire who are up and on their way uh in, in the world and suddenly they have this very easy to like cheap film that they could distribute and make bank off of. 
Um, so, I mean, that would be my, what, what, uh, what was the hidden answer you're looking for here? Well, it's not really a hidden answer, but the star, quote unquote, star power had some kind of allure to it. Although at the time they weren't yet stars per se, because they were trying to shop this around, around the time that Romeo and Juliet is coming out. So Titanic has not come out yet. No. Leonardo DiCaprio has a little bit of a presence in the indie scene and he had been nominated for an Oscar. Tobey Maguire had been in some stuff. These were both child actors. Yeah, this and is so... prior to the Cider House rules. And when did the Ice Storm come out? So Ice Storm came out in 1997, I think. Okay, so is still a little ways before that. So yeah. So by the time that this movie did come out in 2001, there was a lot of talk in the press about how this was a Tobey Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Sure. Because by that time, Titanic had happened and Leo was a big deal. But at the time in mid-90s is where we get this kind of interesting time period in cinema making in that this underground kind of subversive form of film composition became a little bit more mainstream, Mm. not necessarily in the Hollywood box office kind of way, but in a distribution way. The 90s is known as the golden era of avant-garde and independent cinema yeah we don't really have a time period before that or after that that really is going to get so much backing from actual production studios Mm -hmm. towards this indie kind of feel we also get this weird type of existential nihilism in the 90s in the cinematic landscape about the the kind of one night the dark night of the soul becomes a popular type of trope right i'm thinking these kind of i mean go came out maybe a little bit more towards the 2000s ads but Uh, go go, go was 99 go was 99 okay so it, it has that kind of feel of these are some forgotten films because narratively they have a very, very loose three act if we're going to be generous about yeah. it, because at some point there's some sort of heightened crisis and then, you know, the dawn clears everything away. But just this like one night, <laughs> like what what can we get done in one night? It's just action, action, action. Very similar almost to kind of an the Odyssey of uh, capital O Odyssey of we've just got this one man who's just trying to get home and he's just going to go through a whole bunch of shit to get there. <laughs> that was a 90s film. Yeah. So there's a pinnacle moment in which films could look like this. And so it makes a lot more sense to contextualize Dawn's Plum as a film that came out or not came out, but was shot in 1995. Cause when it came out in 2001, it was a little confusing cause it was a little bit not right. What yeah. early 2000 films were sort of shaping up to it be in the independent odd realm. Film but... To Americans, I feel. Uh, by all accounts, when this film did debut at a film festival in 2001 in Berlin, I think it was the Berlin Film Festival, mm-hmm. which is why Lars von Trier is thanked in this movie, because <laughs> he was the one who got it into that festival. I found a few contemporary reviews of the movie, and they are all glowing and positive, and said, yeah, this is awesome. I, yeah, I too looked up some reviews, and... Some of them are great, some of them are not great, and it does seem that a common thread amongst the positive reviews are a non-U.S. audience. And so, particularly reviewers from Belgium seem to really like this film. (laughs) I came across 
so many Belgian reviewers <laughs> and they all really liked it. So that was really interesting. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think there is something about this film that is going to, I mean, all films speak differently to different audiences. That's just kind of, you know, how media works, but that does especially seem to be the case with Don's Plum, that it has a more European cinema feel, but then it also is probably interesting from a kind of 90s American teens having conversation might be more interesting to non-Americans because I always find it more interesting watching sort of like French teens talk about, you know, their high school experience. Yeah. It's just there's that kind of, oh, like a different perspective. Yeah, what was that all about? Let's let's hear it. Like, tell us your story. It's like the last thing I wanted as a, a 90s American teen was to listen to other 90s American <laughs> teens. Like, that was just insufferable. So. Uh, yeah, we kind of like skipped ahead a little bit there. Like I said, the Toby's people was were having Leo's people call up everyone in Hollywood, say, do not release this film. The filmmakers found out about this and filed a lawsuit that basically... These guys were fucking with the release of their film, that they were deliberately trying to sabotage the project. Uh, I know there was some like there was some legalese, you know, in the the documents that you can find on the smoking gun, but basically suing them for stopping the film from happening. And the biggest issue that they ran into in the lawsuit was that they had zero paperwork on the making of the film. During the making of it, it was basically all handshake deals between. Mm-hmm this guy like the the filmmakers and their friends like i think there are some documentaries you can find on on what was it new yorker that had that documentary so the new york post i believe it was yeah did a really great little three or four part documentary that is currently findable on youtube Mm -hmm. and that sort of separate episodes really interesting watch that i would recommend watching yeah there was a countersuit from i guess leo and toby's people and like that documentary actually shows their 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 video dispositions being Mm -hmm. spoken and they're like just so very low-key and like bored while they're doing it it's kind of hilarious to watch leonardo looks so sullen and greasy and once again i had this moment of just questioning younger 11 12 year old me because i think my height of leonardo (laughs) obsession came when i was 11 or something because i was you know when titanic came out and yeah, I, I just look at it. I'm like, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> it is always fascinating to me to see like people who are so charismatic and have such a an amazing presence on film to be put in a situation where that does them absolutely no good whatsoever, and you see it just sink away from them. And... Yeah, this is doing him no favors. Yeah, no favors. That uh, that that was fascinating. Uh, so eventually, like the lawsuit went back and forth for a few years until they really they reached an agreement that one. You take away that line about Toby sticking his finger up his butthole. None of that. Can't do that. And two... Heaven forbid. Heaven, you God forbid we, we have to hear about an honest-to-God masturbatory practice that anyone can do and is perfectly healthy. Whatever. You know, it would ruin a career, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but also, they cannot release the film in America or the UK, I believe. Something like that. It can only be released in... I think it's just North America. Maybe just North America or the Americas. I think it was Canada and the US. Yes, so basically Canada and region U- and the US. one DVDs. Yes. Only region two. So the UK, Europe, or Asia. Or three, four, and five, but just whatever. not region one. Although they were pushing for Japan as well. They wanted to shut that shit down in Japan really hard. And why this is... 
is because at the time, oh god, Leonardo DiCaprio's fan base in Japan was apparently insane. I just believe really it. big. Yeah, and not even for his film work per se, but he had started early there because he had done a series of commercials. Yes, there it is. The fucking Japanese commercials. <laughs> yes, which are the best commercials ever. I can't remember what he was advertising. I think some sort of drink or... It's often an energy drink or, or a lotion of some sort. I mean, I that is like, that's a... We could do like an episode, like Cinema of Cruelty. Let's talk about Japanese commercials featuring A-list Hollywood actors that are batshit insane. With commercials. So I went to go look on Leonardo DiCaprio's IMDb page to check some stuff. And all of, not all of his commercials, but a lot of his commercials are listed on his IMDb page now. So is IMDb doing commercials now? I have never heard of that. I guess like it's... I guess, like, if you look in the section that says, like, appearing as self, because there's a separate section for mm-hmm. actor and then self. Like, anytime they appear just, like, as yeah. themselves in documentary footage or what have you. So I mm-hmm. guess it could be listed. No, these are mixed there. in ah, with I'll his movies. Some... Yeah, it was really wow. interesting. I'll check that out sometime. That's that's fascinating. But, uh, yeah, so it goes on long enough to, to where it can only be released in Europe. It comes out at the Berlin Film Festival in 2001. Gets very good reviews from the European viewers. And really just slides into obscurity after that in a in a very odd way. Well, so they did win Japan in the lawsuit, um, or Don's Plum's representatives won oh, Japan. okay. And then there was a really sad kind of uh, thing that happened where an earlier producer had sent Japan a letter about the potential buy rights to the film back in 1995. Okay. And... Japan had taken this as the agreement, even though there was no actual contract signed. So when they won Japan in the suit, and then they went to go try to sell the rights to Japan, they're like some of the major distribution companies over there were sort of. But we already have the rights to Don's Plum. We've been distributing it for years, and so they didn't actually make any money off of Don's Plum from Japan. The market where that really would have been helpful. So I guess like when the producer in the, the New York Post interview mentioned that after all of the legal fees and after selling off the rights to everything, he made $180 off of Don's Blum with God. all he's ever seen from the oh, movie. Man. And then to add even more of a kind of the sad tale of Don's Blum, that eventually the Happy Meal guy, I don't know what kind of financial troubles he ran into, but he ran into some kind of financial troubles and went back through all of his contracts to see who still owed him money oh, and no. found that Don's Plum had still not paid him back the 70 grand that uh. they owed him for the film. And that was a separate lawsuit that <laughs> I guess nobody showed up for or something. I don't know. So the Happy Meal guy ended up getting defaulted the rights to Don's Plum. So currently, as far as anybody knows, the current holder to the rights to the film Don's Plum is the McDonald's Happy Meal guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, McDonald's Happy Meal guy. Please do the world a favor. Let it happen. Let, come on. Come on. Well, I mean, like, it's still banned. Like, the ban in North America is still in effect. Okay, yeah. That's the next thing I should really mention. That's so stupid to me. 
it's still banned in America. That's so absurd to me that this film could only be like, I could only see this film because I happened to reply to a comment on a Reddit forum that someone involved with the making of this film saw had a link to the only way to watch this film in a private Vimeo channel. And that's that way I can see it. I did read how as late as 2016, there was an effort to put this film like just on a website called like Free Don's Plum. Free Don's Plum. Yeah. I remember that website. I've, I've had been to that website okay, previously yeah. back and in the day. it just had the movie on there and it got a cease and desist from Tobey Maguire's people again. How petty are you, Tobey Maguire, that like decades later, this stupid film is like hurting your ego. What the hell, man? It is very bizarre because first and foremost, that is a horrific situation for the First Amendment and free speech and <laughs> all these kind of different things that something could be banned to that level yeah. for n no good reason <laughs> yeah i get a little bit um i mean we we can of course get into like copyright violation and image issues and slander and all this kind of stuff so i mean there are you know loopholes around the, the sure. free speech stuff which is what the lawyers found to ban it in the first place i don't actually get but i could slightly get in the context of the day, back in early 2000s, when you have these younger guys whose career is taking off, they don't know if this film is going to hurt their image one way or another when they're just sort of on the rise. Mm -hmm. I get them being self-conscious about that and worried about that at the time. I do understand, like, there is so much paranoia, I think, among, like, yeah, people who were in that position, like, in that early Hollywood, like, rising Hollywood star or what have you and are just scared stiff that something's going to go wrong. No one really knows. I my, my favorite quotes about Hollywood of all time is from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who after working uh, in Hollywood for 10 years, just said, what I've learned in 10 years of writing screenplays is that nobody knows anything. Like literally no one seems to know what it is that makes them successful or what makes them popular. They just, it's like just whoop, shrug and hope that it goes well. So I can I get that there is a paranoia that could lead them to wanting to stop this from happening. At the same time, uh huh. Now that it has been yeah twenty years, here we go, twenty five years. That's right. I do not understand why anyone would would give a fuck at yeah, this point that, because that, that ship has sailed. Yeah, after like twenty five years. That's the point where I say to myself, okay, no, all bets are off. Fuck you. You're petty. You've done it. You were in, like, Toby, you were in three Spider-Man movies. You are still Spider-Man to a lot of people. Leo, you, damn won, you won the damn Oscar and got to give a speech about the environment, okay? You did it. This movie cannot hurt you anymore. He was in Critters 3, and that still got distribution. <laughs> He's fine. So, <laughs> although Critters 3 is awesome, so I mean, I, I, I don't was mean... about to say, how dare you besmirch the good name of Critters 3? No, I mean, I have a Critters poster on my wall. Like, don't. It's, it's fine. I also would possibly get if this movie was super offensive, if they were just 
misogynist, racist, homophobic, horrible pieces of trash that if anybody saw this would kind of ask, how are you still being allowed to exist as a human being? <laughs> right. I would get if they, after 25 years, were like, no, I really kind of want to keep this one locked in the vault because that's not me and I don't want that to be a reflection of me. This is something I greatly sort of regret from my youth. But Don's Plum is not that. It's not that movie. It's just some dudes hanging around, some of them being a little bit better at improv than others, none of them being professional improvers. It's just a really non-consequential piece of cinema is really what it comes right down to. (laughs) And that's that's not a criticism on the film one way or another. I'm not saying that Don's Plum is a horrible film. It's just, it is what it is. It's an avant-garde yeah. movie of improv from the 1995. Like, there's nothing offensive or all that problematic no, about see, it. Here's the thing to me. Obviously, when you hear us talk about this movie, we don't exact, we don't paint it like it's anything fantastic or any great work of art. But what it is, what you can say objectively about this film is that people worked on it. They made it. When you put that kind of effort into something, it should be seen by people. And the fact that it's not seen by people because millionaires are a little embarrassed by it is absurd. It is ridiculous to the point where I can't quite wrap my head around the fact that this is a factual story in history. That Tobey Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio became these, yeah, very petty self-conscious individuals in the way that they did and that their legal team is still on top of stuff. I do think, (laughs) however, that you can see, if I'm not mistaken, versions of it on YouTube. Yeah, there's a version on YouTube that's very low resolution. I think like 240p, like the resolution that YouTube was at in 2005 is the resolution you can see this thing on, on now. The version I saw on Vimeo, I think, was... A little shy of standard definition, like 480p, but it's still not very good, and it's not a very good scan of the movie. This is, you know, it's a movie shot on grainy 16mm. I say it deserves, like, a good high-definition scan, like, to be available on some, you know, obscure streaming site. Maybe, a, you know, or maybe some sort of Blu-ray with that New York Post documentary attached to it as a, as an extra feature. Why not? Right? That's It's a very well, it was a very uh, nice little documentary they did about the film. And the fact that it can't, like I said, the fact that none of that can happen because millionaires are embarrassed is just so stupid to me. So I do think, I mean, there are torrent available sort of access points because this film was at least released on DVD in other parts of the world than the U.S. and Canada. And so it isn't one of those things that you have to go and find the original film reel in a basement and sort of stream it and it's the only way to see it but it definitely does give it a minor restoration just don't you don't have to go in and clean up every speck of greater dust off of the thing but scan the thing scan it in high def why not and i think one of the the things as well is that had this movie come out, I don't think that many people would have necessarily seen it right. because it is a very particular 
audience mm-hmm. for a black and white yeah. experimental film. I could not imagine this being like if it was released, it would if it had been released in America, it would have been like, you know, select theaters, independent art houses, art house cinemas. It never would have been like you wouldn't have gone to your local AMC theater and seen this thing or anything like that. It wouldn't have been released that way because there would not have been an audience for it, even with the star power of Leo and Toby. I just think that had it been released, maybe you know some people would have seen it and then it would have been forgotten. Kind of like the uh, that mediocre celebrity movie that Leonardo DiCaprio's in. It was one of the lesser Woody Allen films. Oh, the yeah. black and white film that yeah. he was in for like two seconds. I and, never saw and that. And that came out and... Yeah, exactly, because it's a black and white no, film yeah. about <laughs> inconsequential shit happening with a group of people. So it, it would have been fine, yeah. is all I'm saying. Although the big takeaway from this is just what an asshole Tobey Maguire is. The stuff that's come out about Tobey Maguire since then gets really fun. That kind of happening with Molly's game and stuff in oh. 2014. Do you remember all were you uh Molly's up on the the Toby Maguire no, kind of what information? Was that? So, Toby Maguire does have a reputation in Hollywood for being a bit of a sort of diva and an asshole. Oh boy. And he he loves to play poker and he loves to gamble. Oh. And apparently he's some sort of vegetarian or vegan or something. So, <laughs> he was yeah, a guy that was big in the scene of the underground poker tournaments that could happen amongst celebrities and higher paying clientele in i think it started in the viper room out in los angeles Mm. and one of the women who kind of became a little bit of a i guess she ran some of the games wrote a book about it and she had a lot of interactions with Tommy Maguire. And so a lot of those interactions kind of came out in this book. And then Aaron Sorkin made a movie about it called Molly's Game. Oh, that the Jessica Chastain movie, right? Yes. And so in it, Tobey Maguire's role is just referred to as Player X. But because of all of the people <laughs> who were in this scene, everybody knows Player X is Tobey Maguire. And he's just an amazing asshole where he would make hostesses and waitresses kind of bark like a seal for tips and he would throw these massive fits if he lost and he wow. he has a little bit of a temper is yeah. the thing we learned from Don's Plum That's, I mean he uh, There is a story in here somewhere uh, about how Tobey Maguire was like in a meeting with the producers and just began to get in their faces like really like Rah! like and start screaming at them like you're trying to you're sucking off of our fame and, and, and like just flipped out at them so yeah and okay. it's like it's 2001 bro you're not that famous <laughs> like, let's, let's <laughs> well, take it back 2001 yet it was like the early 90s or uh, like late 90s that's so. true yeah God. He's always had an ego. You know, it's a very kind of the Hulk type of story. He he does seem to have this very Jekyll and Hyde oh, Hulk yeah. kind of character where he's got a lot of inner rage. And when that shit comes out, Oof. you take a step back. Ugly, man. Oh, I, I'm curious. So maybe he's not Spider-Man after all. We should have sort of cast him in this Hulkish role. I think he's more see, the goblin than anything else. See what happens. Yeah, no, he's uh, he has some feelings. Tobey Maguire has a lot of feelings. Oh, All right, boy. so top five. Top five, okay. My number five uh, is Brad. Which one's Brad? S. 
Oh, yeah, Earthman. Yeah. Okay. Uh, again, I just kind of thought it was nice. Like, okay, here's an actor who's not afraid to play a bisexual character in the mid-90s. All right, good for you, you know? Or just the first thing that appears on screen. And like, badass. Also, <laughs> badass, man. Come on. What? Give it up. He was the only nudity we got in this film. That's true. So. You know, it's like an indie film like this, you would think would be okay with some nudity. Like, give us that, like, European, you know, casual nudity. But no, not so much. That's a shame. You're number five. Uh, my number five was um, Meadow Sisto, Jeremy Sisto's sister. Right on. Yeah, I, yeah, I was really. Just wish. really because of her face. Ah, God, that face. I could watch her just kind of do that smirky smile for, God, for hours. I that yeah it really was disappointing to me that like we didn't see more of her. And my number four is Kevin, but I'm gonna change that to Meadow Sisto because Meadow Sisto kicked ass in this, and because <laughs> she's way better than Kevin Conley. She's way better than Kevin Conley. I guess I was uh I, I don't know I I just found Kevin Conley to be like kind of natural and charming in this thing, but yeah no, Fuck yeah. Her. We'll check him out. Fuck you, fuck you your entourage. Love entourage being son of a bitch. Have I ever? Oh yeah, random trivia about Kevin Connolly at the time. Apparently, what he was known for was he was in a sitcom that was a married with children parody. So it was that oh, premise. Oh, that's right. Unhappily ever after. I remember yeah. that show. So that was what he was there for. Yeah. Well, that makes sense that Nikki Cox showed up in then because she played his sister in that show. Oh, okay. And there we go. Yeah, man, I, that that show was just it was like a, a, a unapologetic married with children clone, uh, except that the the father figure for whatever reason had there was a puppet that only he could see because the puppet represented his ego or something, voiced by Bobcat Goldthwait. Yikes. Yeah, I. I don't know. I can't do puppets. Yeah. No, no. You. It, well, this wasn't a very convincing puppet, so I think you would have been okay with that it. That makes it worse. But uh, Nikki, Nikki Cox was just there as, like, incredibly obvious eye candy. Like, literally, any time that she walked on screen, she was wearing some tight outfit, and the audience would, like, hoot and holler. And it was like, it's like this audience would be, can would be Me Too canceled by modern standards. It was so bad. Fair enough. I... Would like to clarify, I am, don't actually have a phobia of puppets. They do not scare me. I just do not agree with the fundamental premise of their existence. <laughs> so my number four is Toby Maguire's face when he sings. Uh... <laughs> Mostly because I refuse to put Toby Maguire himself on a top five list for okay. Don's Plum. But... God damn it. Like, it was so much fun to watch Juliet. what his face was doing. Juliet. I I wish you were cooler as a yeah. person, Toby Maguire. I wish you were. Um, yeah. My number three was Leo. All right. Um, here's... Uh, this is a really weird thing. I have to say it. Toby Maguire... Not Toby... Uh, but Leo DiCaprio is an actor... Uh, I don't know a better way of putting this. I am always very conscious of when he is acting. Or like, he's a guy that when you see on screen, everything he does screams at you, I am acting, I am acting, I am acting, look at my performance, I am acting, I am acting. Like, Do you mean that in a good way or a bad way? Sometimes it's worse than others. Or also, yes. Like, I liked him, I thought he was great in like Django Unchained. 
But like the departed, there are so many moments there where like I felt like his screaming was being was forced. He has this face mm-hmm. he does when he's being dramatic. It's like this thing, like his eyes go kind of intense and his eyebrows go through this straight line across his brow. I don't know how to, I don't, it's difficult to put into words, but it's like, I am just always aware that I am watching someone try really hard to give a performance. And that doesn't necessarily mean he gives a bad performance in most of his films. Good actor, Academy Award winning actor. When has the Academy ever been wrong about, you know, acting? That doesn't happen. Right? Yeah. Never. Anyway, I say that because for the most part in this film, I don't get that from him. Still young and raw? Just young, raw, Leo being Leo, like give it a very naturalistic performance that I, I totally buy that he is this guy. So like most of us, you just miss 90s Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I gotta get down to it. I really do. (laughs) So my number three was Flo the Waitress. Okay, respect. Yeah, Flo's awesome. She was a light in 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 this thing. In a dark She lit up the screen whenever she did her little dance or her voice. And I actually did like that they gave her this juxtaposition personality that was hyper aware of her performativity within the waitress space. Okay, guys, I'll go ahead and I'll put that order in. Be right back. Just gotta go to the bathroom. I Fuck hate these, these motherfuckers. Kids. God damn it, these kids. Oh, I gotta get off this shift. Hey, you wanna give me a different shift? I'll blow you. Yeah, I just kind of want the flow the waitress story. Yeah, there are many moments in this movie that were given glimpses of characters that would make more fascinating films, but no, we're not given that at all. Uh, my number two is is Amy the hitchhiker. All right. Yeah, just. The limited time that she had, she was, like, kind of doing some cool stuff. Uh, and I guess also it is, like, a little sympathy that she was... Leah would treat her like such an asshole during all that, that, like, she was booted from the film early just because apparently Leo didn't get along with her. Oh. Well, he thought that she was bringing down the film, but that she, she didn't was, shine. That... <sighs> you need that sometimes, though, Leo. That's called... You know, it's a, it's a dichotomy, you see, Leo. That's how drama works. You gotta I have mean, he understands how drama works. His father committed suicide. Oh, good lord. Don't. Ugh. <laughs> Talk about bringing down a scene, like, out of nowhere. Uh, um, anyway. So, number my number two is actually Dale Wheatley. Or Whitley, I don't know oh, how to pronounce right his on. last name. Yeah. So, Dale Wheatley. A little bit uh, out of context. Who may or may not have yeah. been who I talked to on Reddit. <laughs> So this guy, I I have a lot of empathy for this dude. Mm -hmm. He has, from what I gather from the New York Post interviews, has put a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of blood, sweat, anxiety into trying to keep Don's Plum alive. Most of the other people who have worked on this film have just kind of let it go. They're like, yeah, it was a film that I worked on back in the 90s. I don't really think about Don's Plum. I don't really care about Don's Plum. But Dale Wheatley is still daily putting in the good fight to get that movie out. And from what I can tell from the interviews with him, he does seem... It's bigger than you know the film that he was friends with a group of guys. He experienced this moment of what he feels is betrayal, followed by prolonged exposure to stress. And so, yeah, I think there's this interesting psychological thing that's happening that's very complicated 
and mm. yeah, he hasn't really been able to get work um, since because he's tried to pitch new projects, but nobody in the industry will work with him because he's the guy that sued Leonardo DiCaprio. So yep. it does seem like this has had a profound impact on his life in a way that it hasn't anybody else's. And so he makes the list because he is this film at this point. There you go. A moment of silence for... A moment of silence. For the Dale childhood Le joy Dale that has died. Uh, Dale sorry, Lee. Dale. I No, I really appreciate that he's fought for the freedom yeah. of... Freedon's Plum and If that's who I talked to on Reddit, Dale, thank you so much, man. Uh, that is... He actually seems like a good guy. He like does. I, I, know, I like him. I do wish better for him. Uh, before I give him my number one, I I forget that we were doing top five. I had, I had a number six. My number six is Toby. Because... Toby, what the hell, man? Grow up. We've gone over how immature that guy is being about this film. But my number one is actually Toby's performance. Because he's <laughs> fucking adorable in this movie. I've said it many times. But I love that he is just being a complete goofball in this thing. In a movie that... I, I get the feeling that like when they went into this... They were all like, yeah, we're going to come off as the coolest cats ever, man. We're going to do a cool, you know, artsy indie film. And Toby's approach to it is just to, like, say, hey, why don't you come to the diner with me? Why don't you do that? Hey, Juliet. Juliet. Like, he's just being a goofball, and it really, really works. And I applaud that performance. I do not applaud the man, because the man is an asshole. Yeah, exactly. So my number one is a man by the name of Toledo Diamond, who is the dude who is the jazz singer oh, for the opening okay. sort of 10 minutes of this film. Right on. I loved everything about him. I loved his voice. I loved his performance. Oh, yeah. I loved whatever vibe he was bringing mm -hmm. to the film. And as we mentioned earlier, I just wanted that all the way through. Another, Like I said, this movie gives us moments of like, wouldn't this be an interesting film? Too bad we're going to Don's Plum. Well, I mean, I do think there are enough interesting bits throughout it, and so we can get into that, would you recommend it to a friend? But hmm. my sort of thing is more that I can see the potential in Don's Plum. These were some very young people that were involved in this movie the mm -hmm. director and the producer were part of this posse they were in their early 20s and so to have kind of some of the shots that they do and also just knowing what a clusterfuck hellscape it is to just have three full days worth of improv footage and to try to edit that down into any semblance yeah. From three to, of they were something running, watchable I read, I read that they were running three cameras at any given time uh, for a 16 millimeter film so they could like you know get the shot that they needed really quickly and easily so to go through all of that footage holy shit that has got to be a yeah. time and a half so the making of this movie when i actually think about it in context the fact that they were actually working with film as well that this was their first film this is this is a really solid interesting attempt under those conditions and yeah. so it is a really sad thing for me that this movie was censored and the people who were involved with it 
did not get to have the careers that they possibly could have had because of the trial and all the things that surrounded because mm -hmm. I do think that with a bigger budget with more experienced people kind of helping out on set as well a little bit more experience over time that yeah. the producer director kind of combo really could have done some interesting things sure. so it's yeah, it is a tragedy to me that we were stripped I of what could have I been. Could, I would say that if you were in, in a perfect world and the McDonald's Happy Meal guy gave the rights to Don's Plum to somebody and those rights involved a remake, you're allowed to remake this film however you want, and they had, let's say, a $200,000 budget to it. And instead of relying on improv, wrote a script out. Maybe like it was a script you spent a few months workshopping you know doing some good table reads like really working out like what the good like what the good bits are drawing like you know asking people at the table hey have did you have a moment like this did, you know what's a conversation you've had like this like being open to you know some feedback and getting that material together and then you spend not three days but you spend maybe you spend two weeks filming these simple bits you could have something, I think, pretty nice and pretty cool. As So long as... What was the singer's name? Toledo Diamond. Toledo. As so long as Toledo Diamond is there. Like, merge those first two scenes. Like, you make the jazz club part of Don's Plum so that we can have characters, instead of doing a bathroom confessional, they go back into the jazz club and listen to, listen to Toledo Diamond do his thing, and well, whatever song he is singing is something relevant to them. I don't know if I would necessarily redo Don's Plum because I think what actually does work about it is this raw time capsule of a very 1990s feel with a group of people that are often forgotten now, but yeah. for a very brief sliver of a time looked like they were all going to be something. And then most of them ended up on kind of episodic crime shows on NBC. But... <laughs> The skeleton of it is kind of that that weird just improv of this group of people. Mm -hmm. I sort of meant more just if he, these people were to then, you know, come up with new stories, have some production, right? If they were to move on from Don's Blood sure. to do other things, that it, it could be sort of a thing. So I don't know if Don's Blood would really even work as a, a remake or a rework. Mm -hmm. so, we call it yeah. Don's Blood. Actually, no, you don't call it Don. You call the movie Toledo Diamond. Yes, we just need Toledo Diamond story. Or we just need a movie about whatever to, like Toby Maguire was doing in this movie, just trying to pick up women for the entire film in this jazz club. <laughs> that was the other thing, is I figured that was going to be Don's Plum, and then they moved to this sort of Denny's diner. I'm like, why did we not do the entire thing in this cool burlesque club? Because <laughs> Whole movie Toby Maguire just striking out over and over again. So, yeah, the, the different ways to hit on a, a person. Although that would be the short, probably. So, anyway, would you recommend this to a friend? No, I would not. Um, which, normally, when I when we have movies like this and we wonder, like, do we recommend them to friends? I would say, like, yes, because I want to know who my friends are. But You don't have any. I... <laughs> no, all I have is, is you and the hell that I live in, but... And that I love London cup that you've been drinking out of, I see. <laughs> that hasn't gone unnoticed. Ironically, it's the only cup Poor I bastard. have. This stupid thing. Once again, it's all you have. All you have is me. And I don't even like you. 
But no, uh, if someone had organically in conversation brought up Don's Plum and said, yeah, I've heard about that film. What's that all about? I'm like, let me send you a link. You can check it out. But no way am I going to talk to someone, like, if I talk chat with somebody tomorrow, am I going to say, let me tell you about a special movie, a fantastic movie by the name of Don's Plum. It's a story of people in a diner. That's really all I can tell you, because that's really all that it is. Yeah, I too, I wouldn't recommend this nor would I not recommend this okay. film. So a little purgatory the action there. Film, yeah, kind of is what it is. Like, I don't necessarily feel like my life has been made better or improved in any way by watching it. But I also like it didn't detract. It wasn't that. Oh, I really want the last hour and a half of my life back or whatever. There were true. I yeah. was perfectly okay. interested by what was happening on the screen as it was happening, mostly for sort of meta or paratextual reasons because mm -hmm. it was interesting to see these people knowing the history that I did about the film. So, it is, yeah, it's neutral yeah. experience in that way. It, it is strange that the movie is kind of saved by the metatextual story behind it. Uh, like, a good recent example of that is actually The Snowman, uh, which we saw... Yes. Yeah. We Th will do. That movie on its own is like... Where did the last... That is like, I want an hour and a half of my life back. What the fuck just happened? But then you read about the making of that movie. You're like, wow, that is insane. They didn't film yep. part of the script. They, for some reason, gave Val Kilmer all these lines when it was clearly painful for him to talk. Actually, just, just save it. Let's do the snowman next. I, let's just do the snowman. Do do? Okay, I'm down. I'm down. We'll do this. We'll do this. I mean, if you want to talk about cruel, like, let's... Yeah. <laughs> Cinema of cruelty. <laughs> Okay. Right there. Might yeah, yeah. Okay. I think I'm we sadly are in agreement right. on something. So pain scale level. Pain scale level for Don's plum. I'm gonna give this a seven. I our pain scale is always complicated. Uh, but I do factor in like I think like the the regular moviegoer's reaction to this, like combined with my own. because uh, for me, uh, I think because I I knew about the making of this film going into it, so it, I was like in for just something different, something weird and something that may make me say, why is this happening? Why is this in the movie? But I was okay with that. But your average moviegoer, I think the moviegoer who would have seen this in 2001 had it actually been released in America, uh, they would have hated it. <laughs> so, they... And I'm thinking of the pain scale more from kind of fellow underground cinema avant-garde, like, you know, the, the usual suspects right, audience. Right. Um, I give it about a five, sure. I guess. Like, I have never felt more conflictedly neutral <laughs> about a movie because there are some things in yeah. it that were really, really cool and great. And then there were other things that I'm like, this doesn't need to be here. Like, that was a weird choice. And it balances out to an absolute neutrality that I don't know what to do with. So, five. Five. All right. Fair enough. So... Um, do you want to, so uh, go ahead. As you say, I think that's, that's probably it, right? We've, we've covered, I mean, there's so much more probably with the, the detailed history of, of Don's Plum. Yeah. You know, but... London, we can go over all those details. We can search through the minutiae of legal documents, but at the end of the day, you know what we have to just do London? We have to do what Toby 
needs to do and, and just relax. Relax. Safe worded out. I'm good, bro. What's been up? I just gotta find some chicks tonight. Stand loud! In a dark room. Cigarettes. 
I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!